Hello and welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin episode 32. My name is Brian Fabian Crane and today is August 10, 2014. Uh, Sebastian is still on vacation. Uh, he's about to come back, I think, tomorrow. So uh, from next week on, he will be back in the sort of original constellation. But this time again, I'm sort of a solo host. And I'm joined today by two people. And they're Ira Miller and Freya Stevens. Ira is the CEO of Coinapult. And Coinapult is a wallet provider merchant uh, solution that he founded together with uh, Eric Voorhees in 2012. So, of course, Eric Voorhees is, is very well known in the community, I think, primarily for Satoshi Dice, but but he's also been involved in uh, other projects and has been kind of a spokesperson for a long time. And then Freya is a marketing specialist for Coinapult, and she's also the founder of the Bitcoin UK podcast. Um, so I, I still haven't actually gotten around to listening to one of her episodes, but she has great reviews, so that's it's one of my kind of goals uh, to do that as soon as possible. So today we'll be talking about Coinapult and especially about the new feature they launched, which is called Locks. And the Locks feature is kind of addressing a really a key criticism that's often sort of heaped on Bitcoin, which is the volatility. And it's often seen as sort of a, a roadblock in the way of mainstream adoption. So they're trying to address this with this deluxe feature. And it's uh, really cool and interesting. And they're also talking about a project called Let It Drop. And the basic project, the basic idea of the project is to bring Bitcoin to um, Caribbean Island. So it sounds, of course, really cool. So Ira uh, and Freya, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, you're welcome. Thanks, Brian. By the way, it's Ira. Oh, I apologize, Ira. Yeah, no worries. Um, so, Ira, are you down in Panama at the moment? I am. Yeah, it's a nice sunny day. So, uh, let's just perhaps uh, dive in. Can you tell us a bit about uh, how do you get started with Coinapult? So, Eric and I started Coinapult in January of 2012, uh, and it was designed just to be a very, very simple wallet to allow people to introduce. Uh, new users to Bitcoin by sending it to their email or cell phone. Uh, and it, it was really designed as the simplest possible way uh, to do this. So at, you know, the original coinapult.com just had a form that said email address, message, and then it would allow you to, to deposit some Bitcoins to an address for the recipient. Uh, we've taken that concept and turned it into a much more sophisticated wallet service now with accounts and uh, some advanced hedging features like you, you mentioned. So what made you in 2012 decide on um, starting a wallet service? Did you feel that was a kind of a big gap at the time? It was a, at the time, actually. Uh, we were the first, I, I believe, the first uh, Bitcoin over email service uh, and also the first uh, SMS-only wallet. So, you know, there are a lot of people that have wallets where you can send somebody an SMS and then it redirects them to a web page where they log in and, and uh, start using. But if they didn't have the internet, then they wouldn't be able to, to use it. Our system is, is different in that it allows people to use uh, Bitcoin using only SMS messages. But you still have to set up a wallet uh, online then, no? No, you don't. You can simply receive a text message. It says, you know, welcome to Coinapult. You've got some Bitcoin. Uh, when you want to send it to someone else, you just text back to us. You say, send it to this number, and we send a similar message to them. Oh, that's really interesting. So I guess that's slightly off topic just at the beginning, but l let's get into that then. 
Do you are you familiar with thirty seven coins and how does that this compare to the thirty seven coins service? I am familiar with thirty seven coins. Uh, they've got a great uh, model and it's very similar. I said we were the the first uh, such wallet, but now there are others popping up and they're very welcome. Uh, this is very hard to to do because you need telecom partners in in various places. And thirty seven coins has picked an innovative way of getting around that by allowing their users in various countries to kind of become nodes for their their network. Ah, uh, cool. So, did did you guys see any traction with this uh, SMS service? We saw some traction. There have been some people using it for you know the last two years since it came out. Uh, unfortunately, due to our telecom providers, uh, we were only able to launch it in the U.S. and Canada uh, over the last two years. And it really just isn't a, a very good fit for those markets. You know, most people in those markets have the internet and have smartphones and can use more advanced Bitcoin wallets. But we think that SMS is a great fit for Bitcoin overall because most of the unbanked people in the world, well, maybe not most, a lot of the unbanked people in the world don't have internet access and uh, they do have feature phones. So can you talk a little bit about how Coinapult developed? So you originally there was this idea of having a really usable uh, web wallet and the SMS thing. And I guess this was super early for a Bitcoin company. You know, it's like uh, more than two, two and a half years ago, which is a sort of a dinosaur age in the Bitcoin world. So what has happened since then? And how has your the vision for Coinapult changed over time? So yeah, we, we initially launched these uh, consumer wallet services the, to allow people to send over email and SMS. Uh, we offered these services for free. Uh, so basically, we didn't make any money off of it uh, to kind of help fund things and, and pay the bills, uh, feed us. We started doing business-to-business uh, -business, um, services uh, so people could sign up with our API and, and send to their users over SMS and so on. Uh, after some time, we'd also developed some very sophisticated market-making software uh, that would allow us to, to buy and sell Bitcoin uh, to basically act as a broker. Uh, we did that for... Uh, quite some time, maybe the last year and a half, we've been doing that sort of business. Uh, for instance, you may have purchased, if you're in Europe, Bitcoins from Cefelo. Uh, we help them uh, acquire and, and clear all of their Bitcoins. Uh, basically, this market-making software that we, we used for uh, liquidity providing turned into our locks technology uh, that we're now allowing all of our consumer wallets to access. So... Is that market making uh, service? Are, are you talking about arbitrage? So were you um, were you using different exchanges to you know trade and, and basically do arbitrage on them, or is that a software service you were providing to exchanges or, or I guess services like Cefelo that directly sell bitcoins to consumers? Yeah, we provide services to. Uh companies like Cefelo that need to buy and sell Bitcoins for their own business to work. Uh, and we do do arbitrage and uh, trade on all the, the major exchanges. Uh, in this way, we, we feel that we can get to a, a very uh, well-informed price. Uh, we can have a price that is more average and more stable 
uh, on a global scale than any single given exchange. Cool. And when you when you look uh, kind of forward and and to Coinapult and I guess two years down the line, where would you like to see the company? I'd like to see our SMS services uh, taking off and among the unbanked. I think that this is the most important thing for Bitcoin as a whole is to bring new consumers in and to to grow access to Bitcoin. Uh, I think that so far Bitcoin has mainly gained traction among very sophisticated, educated people who have very good internet access, who uh, are not just able to access the internet, but are, are typically the most savvy people on the internet. Uh, and I think that if we really want Bitcoin to succeed, if we want the price to go up and, and more people to use it, uh, we need to expand our community beyond the, the most savvy early adopter types. And we need to reach out to people who just want uh, simple services and aren't necessarily trying to, to jump on the, the coolest new technology. Okay, cool. So the focus is really kind of on, uh, especially adoption, uh, facilitating adoption, and I guess especially among unbanked people or people that are kind of outside of the privileged first world, educated, computerized uh, groups. Exactly. I might just jump in here. Um, and one of the reasons I got involved with Coinapult is um, is because, as you say, they've been in the Bitcoin scene for a while, um, since the early days when uh, there was perhaps more focus on the uh, the promise of Bitcoin as a as the great equalizer, and um, yeah, just the the the, the grand vision for Coinopult, um, to my mind, and one reason I got involved with it is is this um, expanding uh, access to people who you know haven't been in the financial system um haven't had bank accounts and um just um yeah getting more people involved so freya is how long have you been kind of involved with bitcoin projects um so i got involved at christmas uh, last year so uh, yeah I'm, I'm a relative newbie um but one of the things that attracted me to it was was the uh the ability for Bitcoin to, uh, you know, be, uh, in, introduce more democratic ways uh, for people to get um, more, just it seemed like a more democratic system to me than the sort of, well, I mean, most people know the story who listen to your podcast, you know, the bank's centralization um, of, of wealth and um, to, you know, a privileged few. Yeah. Okay. So you were attracted to that side, which I, you know, I'm sure a lot of us are. Uh, and then you, you saw that kind of in Coinapult, the company that's pursuing uh, that kind of vision and trying to realize that potential of Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, they really are involved in the in the longer game. You know, they're, they're looking at ways to improve uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem, um, you know, in the long run, you know, not just um, short term profit make, making, uh, you know, which I don't know, but increasingly... I see companies coming into Bitcoin space that, you know, are seeing uh, short-term money-making uh, opportunities, and uh, you know, it's nice to be involved with a company that have that you know see see the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's kind of uh, dive in a bit more uh, into how Coinapult exactly works. So there's the the locks thing, which I want to talk about in a little bit, and then there's obviously the web wallet. Are you guys 
also working on uh, mobile wallets? Uh, we're not actually working on a mobile application at the moment. Uh, our, our main goal is to, to kind of grow access to the Bitcoin ecosystem overall. And there are already a lot of really good mobile apps out there. Uh, in addition, we've mobile optimized our website. So any, any mobile user can still use our wallet uh, in, a, a, we think, a pretty good interface. Uh, this kind of protects them and us from, say, Apple changes their mind again and decides to, to kick all Bitcoin apps out of the store. Our users can still access their, their wallets and their funds and so on. Um, but I'm curious, so is there a QR code scanner when you use it on the web? Uh, there is not. That's one. That's one thing that's definitely missing, uh, and we will uh, work on that. Yeah, that that seems like uh, that should be also, I guess, something. If especially if you target end consumer, you know that will be um, important in the future. Absolutely. So, okay, so there is that, and um, also I've also seen on your website that you guys are offering some kind of uh, merchant services. Is that similar to, let's say, BitPay? It is very similar to to BitPay. Uh, you know, we will help your company uh, receive Bitcoin and then immediately uh, convert it if you wish or uh, lock it to, to gold so that you can spend it later as, as Bitcoin again. Uh, we also do the opposite. So if you're a company that wants to net purchase Bitcoin, uh, you can sign up with us, uh, send us some wires and we'll help you purchase when you're ready. So you guys are also providing the service of uh, I'm a merchant, I get Bitcoin, and then you guys can take those Bitcoins, sell them, and basically give me, um, let's say, US dollars in the bank account. Or you guys exactly okay. So so you can I guess choose either as a merchant either receive the receive the US dollars or like the fiat currency, or uh, sort of get rid of the volatility through the locks thing, or uh, just keep the Bitcoins. Is that correct? Exactly. Oh, that's cool. I, I guess that's a good um, segue into into the locks feature that we sort of mentioned a few times, but I haven't really gotten into. Can you uh, tell us what the locks feature is? Yes, yeah, so locks is a volatility reduction tool. Uh, basically, it allows anyone, any Coinpold user, to deposit bitcoins into their account and then tie the value of those bitcoins to. Uh, stable asset of their choice. Uh, so let's say that you really like gold uh, and you think that Bitcoin is, is very volatile and uh, you wish that you could store some of your value in, in gold and, and have it fluctuate with the price of gold rather than with the price of Bitcoin. You would then uh, go to your locks page on coinapult.com. You would select uh, lock to gold uh, say how much, how many ounces of, of gold you wanted to lock, and you can out, uh, lock down to uh, a hundredth of an ounce of gold, or you know, roughly ten dollars, twelve dollars. Uh, when you click submit, it'll uh, deduct the bitcoins, or you can send it in from uh, a different wallet if you want. Uh, and then from, <coughs> so pardon me, from that point on, uh, it's like you have say one gram of gold that's spendable on the Bitcoin network anytime you want. And as the Bitcoin and gold prices fluctuate, we will make sure that you always have exactly one gram of gold to spend. So, for example, if the Bitcoin price falls in half uh, and gold stays roughly the same, when you unlock your one ounce of gold, you should get twice as much Bitcoin back. Now, the downside of that is if the price of Bitcoin doubles, uh, then 
you unlock your gold, you would get half as much Bitcoin back. Yeah, so essentially it's similar to, let's say I get some Bitcoins and I say I want to... I don't want to have the volatility. I put it on Bitstamp. Uh, I sell it for US dollar and just hold the US dollars there. Of course, uh, in your case, it's uh, more convenient because it's integrated in the wallet. But it, it's essentially a similar thing, right? It is a very similar thing, yes. Uh, we think that uh, we've basically made this tool just easier and more accessible. Uh, you know, it can take weeks to sign up and, and get approved for an account with an exchange. And then you have to know how to use an exchange. What are limit orders? What are market orders? Uh, you know, what does it mean to to say that uh, you know there's this much volume at this price? Uh, most people don't want to to have to learn all these things, and they're not traders. Uh, so we really built Locks as a, a tool for everyday users. So when you, when you talk about the let, let's say I want to lock it to gold because you guys, of course, have to charge a fee, you know, because essentially on the back end, you are you're selling the Bitcoins, no? And for example, for US dollars or for gold. Yes, we are. Uh, we are. When you lock to an ounce of gold, we sell an equivalent amount of Bitcoin as uh, you gave to us to create the lock and buy one ounce of gold. And in this way, this is how we can guarantee uh, the, that we'll always have the right amount to give you in the future is because we hold 100% of the collateral. Uh, as far as the, the fee we charge, it's just a spread. Uh, so there are no uh, fees in the traditional sense, but uh, there is a difference in the bid and ask prices. Uh, typically, the difference between the bid and ask prices is 2%. So uh, if you locked and unlocked immediately, uh, you would have roughly 2% less, than you, less Bitcoin than you started with. Uh, over... It, clearly, the, this service isn't designed to be, uh, you know, immediate lock and unlock. That doesn't serve you any any good. Uh, it's for limited, eliminating volatility over time. Uh, so we think that over the course of maybe a week or two, uh, this 1% or 2% is uh, basically wiped out by the natural volatility of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I, I tested it out last week and uh, it, it worked exactly the way um, the way advertised. I used like a $1 to lock it to... Or uh, one Bitcoin, oh, <laughs> one dollar worth of Bitcoin to lock it to a dollar and then lock it back, and it, it costs exactly two cents in the end to do that. Um, so I, I also went, afterwards I went to the blockchain and I checked, you know, what happened with my coins, and and they never moved from uh, once I paid them in. So so how does that exactly work? Do you hold uh, an amount of Bitcoin? sort of on reserve with exchanges or can you talk a bit about um, the kind of what goes on behind the scenes when that happens? Absolutely. Uh, so as I mentioned, you know, when you create a lock, we, we sell an equivalent amount of Bitcoins and buy uh, the amount that you lock to. So if you're locking an ounce of gold uh, to continue with our example, uh, and it's costing you 2.2 Bitcoins today, uh, which is just a, a very rough estimate. Uh, we will sell 2.2 Bitcoins and buy one ounce of gold uh, upon locking. And when you want to unlock, we will sell the one ounce of gold and buy however many Bitcoins it is at that market price and make those available to you. Uh, we do uh, have ex accounts on uh, numerous exchanges uh, and other uh, liquidity Bitcoin liquidity providers to be able to facilitate this. Uh, and we do keep Bitcoins on reserve for these, uh, our, our own Bitcoins for uh, exactly for facilitating this sort of uh, liquidity. 
So the Bitcoin that you sent us uh, initially goes into our, our shared wallet. And it's not necessarily that exact Bitcoin that we're promising you back. We're promising an equivalent amount of Bitcoin back. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you talk about the, the silver thing, I think that's interesting, right? So because you offer gold and silver. Now, it makes sense for me that right, the dollar is really easy because there's a very liquid market there. But when you talk about gold and silver, does that mean you're going to have to trade the dollar for uh, the Bitcoin for dollar and then the dollar for silver? Uh, and does that mean the fees are going to be much higher or, or do you have some other ways of making that work? Uh, you hit the nail on the head. We, we do, uh, because of the liquidity problem with between Bitcoin and silver, for instance, uh, we do uh, purchase the silver using dollars or euros uh, and similar with gold. But for us, uh, this is not a significant cost. Uh, you know, once we've got the, the infrastructure set up to do this and to do the accounting for it, then it's very easy. It's it's not significantly harder than locking to dollars or euros or British pounds for us. Uh, so we don't charge any more for it. You get the same 2% spread uh, when you're locking silver or gold as you do when you're locking dollars or euros. No, that's cool. I, I, I would have expected that this would be uh, more expensive, no, because you'll have more illiquid markets, etc. But uh, that's really uh, cool that you're able to do this for the same fee. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're lending our liquidity just to provide the best possible user experience. So there's uh, one uh, topic I kind of want to touch on. I guess before that, uh, one, one more point on this. Does that, what about counterparty risk in this case? So obviously you guys are a web wallet. So, you know, anybody who sort of understands how Bitcoin works, they realize that, well, there's a counterparty risk there, right? Just the same as with Coinbase, etc. You know, if somebody hacks coin and pull, well, there's a risk. Um, but essentially, with, with doubling the, um, the counterparty risk, no? Because uh, there's a risk on your side, I guess, on the one hand. And there's also the risk uh, on the side of the parties that you guys hold those values with. Is, is that correct? Uh, that's one way to look at it. I, I think that that can be... Uh, we, we do a lot to, to greatly reduce that. And in a lot of cases, the parties that we're holding, for instance, uh, Euros with, those accounts are actually insured uh, to, to some degree. And we're looking at getting uh, more advanced insurance for them. So it's not necessarily doubling the risk. Uh, in some ways, uh, we hope to actually be able to, to greatly reduce the risk. Uh, but yes, you know, anytime you are using a service like this, there is some counterparty risk. Uh, we don't want to to mislead people into to believing that you know we're somehow getting rid of that, uh, and frankly, we just want to to uh, prove ourselves as a party that's worthy of that through uh, good stewardship and uh, following through on our promises. You've also got to weigh it up against the risk that people perceive in entering the Bitcoin space in the first place, which is is what we're really trying to tackle. The people that that aren't in Bitcoin at the moment because they see it as such a great risk. Um, so, you know, if we can uh, mitigate that risk um, to some extent, I mean, that's, I think that's doing a service to the Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Fair. That's a good point. And of course, another point is that, you know, even if you hold in your own computer, it takes a considerable expertise to do that mm. in a way that's actually safe. So, in, in many cases, people may be better off to keep their Bitcoins with a company like Coinapult or Coinbase or, or a web uh, wallet like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And as somebody who definitely um, didn't come into Bitcoin with technical knowledge of how it works, um, I'm a good, uh, I'm a good um, sort of tester for their system. You know, if if it makes sense to me and uh, and I find it easy and enjoy using the service, it's it's always a two thumbs up that um, you know the general pu- public will uh, will also think the same. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now. I'm really curious about something. So, and then I'm sure you guys have looked into that because one of, one of the promises has, that has been in, you know, in the air for a long time by projects like MasterCoin or a lot of these other uh, Bitcoin 2.0 uh, projects is to create cryptocurrencies that are essentially uh, tracking or pegged to uh, fiat currencies. So let's say the US dollar. And uh, I, I think. I get one way of doing that is having some sort of uh, contract with differences or I, I honestly haven't never looked very deeply into how exactly uh, they were thinking of doing that. And I, I guess I'm not sure if something like that exists, but uh, have you looked into that? Do you think that is, uh, is possible? Do you think that maybe something uh, where you could go to in the future? Yeah, we've looked into this pretty extensively and uh, we think that uh, most of these systems are still very early and they're not actually addressing the counterparty risk, which is kind of their main claim, uh, is that they're going to somehow reduce the counterparty risk. But no matter what sort of uh, contract you try to do, if the other party is betting on, for instance, gold, uh, and they don't actually have the gold, then they're not going to be able to uh, keep good on their end of the contract. So, for instance, you mentioned a, a contract for difference, a CFD. If the if you are uh, making a contract for difference between Bitcoin and gold, uh, and you're on the Bitcoin side, and the other party doesn't actually have the gold or have an equivalent amount of gold, they may not be able to make good on on their side of the contract. Uh, and in a much simpler case than a CFD, uh, for instance, on Ripple now, there are uh, people issuing, you know, gold-backed uh, Ripple tokens uh, and, and similar. But in these cases, it's even more clear where the counterparty risk is. It's with who, who the token issuer is, who actually uh, is holding gold and, and issuing gold Ripple uh, tokens. And, you know, these transact around the Ripple network, uh, and yet... They, they, they all, everyone holding one of those or accepting one of those is implicitly trusting the, the issuer and the uh, continuer holder, continual holder of the underlying collateral, the gold. So really, we we see locks as as no different from these. Uh, you know, we could easily issue a you know a, a gold ripple or master coin, a colored coin, something like that, but we wouldn't actually be solving any problems. There would still be the exact same counterparty risk. Uh, you, the users would still be trusting Coinapult. And what's more, our users then wouldn't be able to use the Bitcoin network. They would be stuck on one of these smaller, less well-connected, less supported uh, cryptocurrency networks. Uh, so an example is with, with Coinapult and a gold lock, you could go to overstock.com uh, and purchase a laptop directly deducting from your gold lock. Uh, so it's almost, uh, as, as far as you're concerned, like you're purchasing a laptop for gold. 
Whereas if you know you were using Ripple or uh, RealCoin, which is a, a dollar-backed master coin that is announced, you would have to first convert your uh, master coins or your Ripple tokens to something that Overstock would accept, Bitcoins, and then you would be able to go and purchase uh, your your goods using Bitcoin. Uh, there are some some retailers that accept uh, Ripple, and uh, hopefully soon there will be some that accept Master Coins. But it's just a much smaller community, and therefore we think less valuable to our customers. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, I think that makes total sense. Uh, so I, I mean, I've just always been curious about this. You know, is is it actually possible? Um, and how will this work? But of course, if it just sort of shifts the counterparty risk somewhere else, um, you know, then that's not necessarily, uh, yeah, then that's not necessarily a benefit at all. That's that's basically how we feel. Now, um, have you looked into whether there's a way of decentralizing this somehow? When you say decentralize this, uh, there are a few there are a few different risks, a few different. Uh, steps along the way. Some of them can be decentralized. Some of them can't. I think the the biggest question that people have is for counterparty risk, like we've just been discussing. And I think that a lot of these uh, Bitcoin 2.0 systems claim to be reducing the counterparty risk. And we think that's pretty misleading because there's always another party to transactions like this. And to say that you're not trusting them is uh, simply incorrect. Uh, there are some things that can be decentralized about uh, about Locks or a, a similar sort of service. Um, in Locks' case, we are basically just plugging into the Bitcoin protocol, uh, which, as you know, is is already decentralized. Uh, so we're at, we're admitting that you know we are the counterparty risk for when you want to use uh, to store your value in a centralized asset, uh, as there is no other there is no other way aside from trusting some counterparty. Our goal is then to be a, a trusted counterparty to allow you to do this when you want to, but when you don't want to, to give you immediate uh, access to the decentralized network where you then take full control again. So really, the Bitcoin protocol uh, is our uh, mechanism for allowing our, our customers to decentralize their, their assets whenever they choose to. Uh, and the way that we've tried to connect the two is to make it as easy as possible to go from Bitcoin into a lock and out of a lock, uh, maybe even without signing up for an account. Uh, you can fund a lock directly from the network. You don't have to first deposit it into your Coinapult account and then lock it after. And similarly, you can withdraw directly from a lock to any other address on the network. Yeah, cool. No, that, I think that makes, uh, that makes sense. And it, it's, I mean, I think... You know the, the way I guess I look at something like locks. I think it's just a really, a really nice and useful service that deals with uh, you know deals with an obvious problem in Bitcoin. And you know, it, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. I think that's something something very positive and uh, something I like a lot. And I, I like a lot that you can essentially stay a hundred percent in Bitcoin, uh, but get rid of some of the volatility, right? So if you let's say a merchant and you accept Bitcoin. And you don't like the volatility, but you still want to be 100% in Bitcoin, you know, then that's something you can basically do with this at, you know, pretty reasonable cost, you know, 2%. It's obviously not cheap, but it has a big advantages because if, if, you know, with the high volatility that Bitcoin has, and I don't personally don't think it's going to go away no. anytime soon, 
you know, that's a real benefit. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned businesses. We think that this could be very interesting for uh, businesses as they start to complete their supply chain. So, for instance, there's been some speculation recently as Overstock uh, accepts Bitcoin already. And recently, Dell started accepting Bitcoin. Uh, and Overstock sells Dell products. Uh, so one, one possibility now is that Overstock can start to integrate their Bitcoin into their supply chain, uh, what we call vertical integration, uh, and purchasing their stock from Dell using Bitcoin. Uh, this is just, a, I don't think either company has talked about this, but it's just a, a clear possibility at this point that people in the community are talking about. Uh, if that happens, then Overstock may wish to use something like Locks in that case, because they know that they're going to need some Bitcoin in the future uh, for purchasing their, uh, their stock to, to refill after purchases. Uh, and rather than converting to dollars, which is uh, what they do with most of the Bitcoins they receive today, uh, they would almost certainly prefer to keep as much of it in Bitcoin as they could. Uh, to, to facilitate this future transaction. At that point, though, they're exposing themselves to risk for, let's say, the one month in between, you know, when they sell the last laptop and when they need to pay for the next one that they're buying to replace it in their stock. Uh, they, would, they could use a lock for that period to protect the profits that they have. Uh, and at the time when the bill is due, they would simply unlock, pay over the Bitcoin network, and uh, we would have hopefully a, a new level of integration in the Bitcoin economy. Yeah, it's a it's an additional tool. So we that's one use for it. But we we expect that the community will find new uses for it that we perhaps haven't thought of yet. Um, you know, if a business has an idea where they want to use the Bitcoin network, but um, you know, obviously the price volatility is an issue, they can um, partner with us and um, provide locks to their users. I've noticed when I signed up, there was a limit. Uh, it said of uh, like three thousand dollars that I was able to lock. Um, why is that? Do you require some kind of uh, KYC to go higher, or how does that work? Yeah, we will be raising this uh, in the future. Uh, three thousand dollars is actually per transaction, uh, so you can lock. I think up to twenty-five thousand ah, dollars okay. right now, but you can only do three thousand at a time. Ah, okay. No, no, that changes a bit. Of course, 25000 is a lot more than 3000 That's actually per asset. So there are five assets, gold, silver, dollars, euros, and pounds. So you can do $25,000 worth of each. Yeah, true, right. But uh, of course, if you're targeting businesses, then I, I guess it depends a lot, but I'm sure you would have then sort of individual conversations with those businesses to have. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. for businesses that are willing to go through our KYC process, we can lift all these limits. So a KYC process brings up something interesting. Uh, is there, does this have any kind of regulatory implications? Do you guys have to, is, is this a financial service, this locks thing? I mean, you guys are in Panama. I have, you know, I have no idea how this uh, works down there, but can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, we think that LOX is uh, basically a new service. Uh, it's, it's a new type of, of tool. Uh, we don't necessarily believe that, that Bitcoin is uh, money or currency. Uh, in a lot of places in the world, it's not legally defined that way. Uh, there, 
The landscape around Bitcoin legally is is very diverse, though. And so we look at it on a country-by-country basis. And in areas where uh, it looks like these services would be more regulated, uh, we've taken a, a wait-and-see approach and have blocked those markets. So indeed, in the U.S., uh, we have actually blocked the U.S. market uh, for the moment as things like the bit license uh, are kind of flushed out and we see really what the rules of the road are going to be going forward. So you do this by blocking the IP address? Exactly. I guess that brings up the a topic that I I've wanted to touch on as well. And I, since the bit license proposals come out, I, I think everyone who's been on, who has some kind of startup, I've asked about the bit license thing because you know, I've read it with a lot of attention. And um, yeah, I think it's a, a really it has in crazy implications if one thinks uh, through all the, at least if it goes through the way it's been drafted. So I guess I'm sure you guys don't want to get a bit licensed. <laughs> so is, is your strategy to, to essentially block American users? That for the moment is our strategy, and and I'll say we definitely do not want to get a bit license as it's currently proposed. Uh, the current bit license is basically a, a free giveaway of the economy to the banks. You know, they, <laughs> there's nothing in it that's that's really reasonable for a, a Bitcoin business. Certainly not a Bitcoin startup. Uh, you know, and as this is a very new space, we, we hope that there are many more startups and, and much more innovation that will continue to go on. It shouldn't just stop at this point. And if you don't have $10 million to spend on licensing and uh, compliance, then tough luck, get out of the business. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we think that the bit license is absolutely the, the wrong direction to be going in. Uh, this technology is so new, no one even knows what it's going to be used for in two years or, or five years. So how can we make rules like this for it that are so incredibly restrictive. Uh, you know, the, the use of blockchain technology for, for messaging, for contracts, for completely non-monetary things uh, is just starting to really take off. Uh, and in this way, New York is, is basically trying to just crush it. That's the only reasonable explanation I can see for why they would propose something like this. They, they have no real interest in, in facilitating this technology and every interest in uh, finding ways to to make it un- unfeasible and unattractive to the users. But do you guys think uh, blocking IP addresses is enough? Because from my uh, from my understanding, it probably is not. No. What do you mean enough? Uh, enough legally? Yeah, because in the end, if let's say a New York user uh, mentioned uh, was using the lock service while they're not in US. So with a different IP address, so let's say they use um, some kind of proxy or VPN. Yeah, VPN. I think that probably wouldn't necessarily protect you guys. Uh, that's that's not what we've read. Uh, and frankly, there's there's no there's no technologically feasible way to to make sure that somebody isn't you know trying to fool us and and uh, using a VPN or something like that. Uh, all we can do is kind of our, our best efforts. Uh, and that's, that's what we've done with this IP blocking and, and similar stuff. Uh, now, <laughs> this is just a general problem. This isn't a question for us. It's a question for, for Ben Lasky and those who would wish to regulate Bitcoin is 
okay, you've got these rules now. How are you going to enforce them? You know, how are you actually going to, well, they're not going to enforce them at all. They're, how are you going to ask companies to enforce this, uh, to do all this, this what I consider dirty work on, on their own customers? Uh, the Bitcoin network doesn't even provide a mechanism in most cases. You know, for instance, someone sends you Bitcoin to pay for uh, some goods uh, at a retail store. Under the BitLicense proposal, you would be required to gather, uh, you know, KYC information on this user. But the Bitcoin protocol doesn't provide a mechanism for doing that. So it's really just an unenforceable, silly rule. Uh, to quote uh, Stephen Pear, uh, the CTO of, of BitPay, why don't they just put up a great firewall like China did? If it's on them to, to enforce this. It's also worth saying that um, our goal is to is to um, maximize access to our services, and and you know we are looking for ways to um, to help the the US um, into our you know help them access our products. So it, it's hopefully this is just a temporary situation, and then we've got legal teams who are you know helping us navigate sort of the tricky situation that uh, the regulators have put us in, really. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with uh, with both of you guys. I mean, so in in my view, and in my understanding of the bit license thing, you know, one of the terms in there is that any company under bit license needs to have a sort of a complete record of all the parties of all the transactions. Um, but of course, that that is just insane, right? Because the only way, in my view, to be truly compliant with this, if it goes through the way it's proposed is if is every if everybody does KYC, uh, even if you don't want to get a bit licensed, just to exclude the people, um, just to exclude the New Yorkers, so you can say, ah, oh, you know, I, I don't have to get one, and then you'd also have to sort of prevent transactions from unknown addresses, because of course, if it's an unknown address that's let's say paying money into your wallet, how would you know it's not someone from New York? And then that's completely absurd, right? It's it's literally impossible. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully they will sort of come around to something at least a little bit more reasonable that then would at least not put as much of a burden on the companies that don't want to get a bit of license. Well, not to mention the other customers. I mean, uh, I, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more international backlash against this because if you're a customer from uh, Europe, for instance, that uses a service that also does business in New York, all of a sudden it's your privacy. It's when, when you want to do a transaction in the future, they're going to be asking for your uh, information. And so, you know, businesses are really being faced with this tough choice uh, to either start treating all of their consumers everywhere in the world, all their customers everywhere in the world, uh, like just like uh, a bank or even stricter than a, a bank would, uh, or block New York. And for us, it's a very easy decision. We don't want to treat our customers like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, if you look at the license thing, the implications kind of are that a co any company that's going to comply with the bit license thing, they're going to have to make their uh, product a lot more, less attractive. So, I mean, f in my case, I, it seems very likely that if this goes through Coinbase, let's say, starts doing bit license, well, I probably will stop using Coinbase, right? 
So it seems to me that even the companies that would have to get one should like lobby really hard not to, you know, not to do that. And I think that even is true for companies that are like really well funded and have lots of money and for whom the legal costs are not such an issue. I think that your analysis is very logical, Brian, but I, I don't have faith that all of these, these companies are actually lobbying against it. Unfortunately, I think some of them see the opportunity to cut out competition by uh, raising the barrier to entry. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm afraid uh, you may be right. Yeah, we ha certainly haven't seen a lot of backlash from any of the big uh, companies. So, actually, let me briefly let's briefly go into a topic that you know you've been dealing on Freya as kind of in your work for Coinapult, which is um, the marketing of. Uh, Bitcoin products. C can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's um, it's an emerging market, so um, there's a lot of um, audience discovery to do. Um, and coming from a previously working in London for an advertising company, um, and in, in very well trodden um, areas of marketing. Uh, the contrast is is massive, you know. So it's 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 quite exciting. So it's about finding where people are who who might be potential Bitcoin users and reaching out to those who already are. Um, and you know, we've come up against um, some hurdles, as in where where is there to advertise? I mean, the Bitcoin community is still quite small, uh, and the number of places to actually put adverts up and and uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 exciting stuff for me as a marketeer. So what are some of those core differences between um, advertising in an area that's, I guess, well-established versus something like Bitcoin? I mean, you mentioned, uh, I guess, lack of uh, outlets, media outlets. But what, what else is there? Um, well, I guess um, one of the big differences is that you're, you're not fighting a million companies to, for visibility as well, which is pretty nice. Um, so, you know, there's there's the potential to, um, you know, get seen um, by the people that matter very quickly. And, um, and that's nice too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it is, um, I think, social media marketing based um, because of the lack of uh, media outlets. And, you know, I mean, you must know with your show, uh, your, there's, there's your podcast and a handful of other podcasts that are sort of globally facing um and uh you know it's kind of like that across the board really in the different areas so that the sort of there's the less plate there's less places to be seen <laughs> i i guess a big challenge must also be to just figure out how to communicate with, you know uh, like how, how do you explain something like locks because it's you know it's it's new no yeah absolutely yeah and we've um you know we've we've had talks about uh how to uh, reach out about our products and and get people to kind of understand what we're doing and um yeah we're hoping to do a, a series of webinars so uh people can if people are interested but they perhaps don't quite understand you know how it works then we can uh we're hoping to have one-to-one -one sessions um, with people and, um, you know, and uh, get people to kind of come along to a webinar and uh, we can explain a bit more. Yeah, that sounds great. Although that being said, I think uh, you guys actually have done a really good job. I think it's really intuitive and, and easy to use. And, you know, I, I, 
I didn't have a lot of difficulties figuring out, you know, how to use the Coinable wallet and then including the locks thing. So I think I think you've done a good job there. Yeah, great. Thank you. I mean, we, we did do a lot of work um, in, before putting before going to launch um, to get the product being really simple to use um, and, you know, and visually really easy to navigate through, um, you know, and and I, I definitely had some things to say about that coming coming into the space as a non-techie you know it was uh, i think it was quite helpful to have that um perspective on things to say you know this needs to be a, you know, we need really big clear buttons <laughs> that's that's uh, one of my my favorite things when i go to a website i need to see big buttons um but yeah i mean it's it's all those things um so you know we we didn't we didn't go to launch until we were happy that our product was gonna you know was gonna be usable for for, for the general public cool uh, well, I think it was really cool talking about um, the Coinapol stuff, and I, I really urge people to check it out. So Coinapol.com, and I think it can be especially interesting, especially interesting if you hold a lot of money in Bitcoin, no? or if, if you receive your salary in Bitcoin, if you get paid in Bitcoin, if you sell things for Bitcoin, then I think things like uh, the locks thing can be super relevant. So you know, I urge anyone to kind of check it out and you know give it a try. Um, so before we kind of wrap up, let's, you guys have mentioned a really exciting uh, project and, and uh, I'm super excited to talk about it. So it's called uh, let the bit drop. Uh, can you give us a bit of background on it? Yes. So we've been working on the bit drop for over a year now. Um, the basic idea is that we are going to send every single person in an island nation, some Bitcoin, uh, all at once. So when we're done, there will be tens of thousands. At the end of that day, there will be tens of thousands of new Bitcoin users, and it will instantly become the largest, highest density population of Bitcoiners in the world. Uh, we're going to do this in, in Q4. We're uh, hoping in the next week or, or maybe two weeks to announce the, the specific date and the name of the island. Uh, we are... Uh, we're going to throw a party at the same time on the island where we'll have educational materials, uh, Bitcoin ATMs. Uh, we're talking to local vendors to, to get them to come out and sell drinks and, and snacks and things like that. Uh, and we're just hoping that it'll be a big smash and, and that these people that you know, are mostly unbanked will find some use for it. Um, what, kind of, um, what amount will be given to the people? Uh, we are just starting to fundraise, so really it depends on, on how much uh, the community is willing to, to send to us. Uh, if you go to letthebitdrop.com, uh, there's a donation address, uh, and if you donate more than 0.1 bitcoins, then we'll enter you into a raffle, uh, and you can actually win tickets to come down and uh, enjoy the party on our, our beautiful Caribbean island. Uh, the The... Because it's it's been so so long in the making, uh, we haven't really uh, set a, a final budget yet. You know, we kind of f figured that whatever the community is willing to give, uh, we'll we'll distribute that to the islanders uh, with some some amount set aside for making the uh, for the educational materials for getting the ATMs and all that stuff down there, and just kind of operations for the the party. I think one interesting scenario, of course, would be, right, so like you're giving out this money to the islanders and let's say it ends up being, you know, $3 per person. 
you know, then the question is, uh, what what's going to happen with that, right? Is does that mean people are going to start using it, and then they have to use it as a sort of to give it a different value for it actually to be used in transactions? You know, uh, is that something you guys have thought about? Whether you may have like totally different exchange rate in in that locale? I I, I guess the I guess that would only happen unless you have a, a liquid market of the local currency to uh, Bitcoin. That's very fascinating. Yeah, we're we're just curious, I guess, as to, to how people are going to use this. Uh, you know, most of these people don't have any access to financial services right now, so it, it may be so foreign that it, it takes a while to uh, really spread the knowledge of, of how to use it and what the potential is to spread amongst the people. Uh, but we do think that there are going to be a core of people who do get it. Uh, maybe some of the business owners that we're reaching out to now will, uh, you know, continue to to support it. You know, we're we're leaving ATMs on the island, so it will be a relatively liquid market. Uh, it can't trade too far outside of the global range, or else the ATM operators will uh, pull pull the island's market back towards uh, the the kind of international standard. Uh, but really, yeah, we don't. We don't know. Uh, no one. I don't think anybody knows because there hasn't been there hadn't been this kind of outreach to the uh, unbanked communities yet with Bitcoin. Uh, and so far, we, what we've seen with Bitcoin is uh, technically savvy, wealthy people and how they use it. And, and you know, they may think, "Oh, do I want to pay with Visa today, or do I want to pay with Bitcoin?" Uh, but that simply isn't isn't even uh, an option for for these people. So. We're just looking forward to to watching and observing. Uh, and you, the the drop is planned to happen this at the end of towards the end of this year, right? Or yes, in Q four. Q four, cool. I mean, I think this will be super fascinating uh, to see what comes out of that. Like, I I really I can't wait. I think it's like an amazing experiment. I think the the MIT thing is is a bit similar, right? Of course, a totally different uh, audience. Um. So, so it's it's quite hilarious that you know two similar so kind of like draw projects are happening uh, at a similar time, and one is you know targeting some of the best educated, uh, well-off, <laughs> most technologically savvy, uh, intelligent people, and then you have uh, another project that's targeting really like low-tech, um, poor and unbanked people so it'd be super cool to see you know how what, what kind of different uses we'll see with bitcoin I'm, I'm excited to see um what what how this will be different from that in terms of because the government have got behind it um the local government um you know whether the fact that they will be sending out educational um materials to to the the people whether that will have an impact you know impact differently on how the public kind of take to Bitcoin. Um, that, that for me is kind of the fascinating thing to, to wait and watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's cool that you guys managed to kind of get the government behind that. That's, I think, uh, of course, that makes it easier also the like the smaller the place you go, right, the more reclusive. I think you will have less of a kind of influence of banks and the paranoia that perhaps makes this difficult in other places. Absolutely. And the government's been very, very nice to us. Uh, you know, I think in addition, the smaller the government and the smaller the place, uh, the more open they are to innovation and trying new things. Uh, and, and that's kind of what we're seeing here. You know, this is a, a relatively poor country and they 
are willing to try new things to improve uh, the economic conditions that they have. And, and frankly, I think that they're going to succeed. Cool. Well, um, I'm super. So if people want to check this out and if they want to participate, what are the best ways they can do that? At the moment, uh, we're still working out some of the, the finer details. So the best way to participate is to go to letthebitdrop.com. Uh, you can there donate and uh, watch for more details. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is thebitdrop. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be coming out with uh, much more details about the projects, uh, the name of the islands, the, the date, uh, hopefully some of our musical guests and things like that. Uh, that are going to be attending the party. Uh, so yeah, just follow us on Twitter. Uh, check out our website, letthebitdrop.com, and we'll keep you up to date. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us uh, today, guys. But perhaps before we uh, wrap up, um, Freya, do you want to talk a little bit or tell us a bit more about the podcast you've been doing? Um, yeah, I can do. So uh, yeah, I've just been running a podcast for about four months now. Um, and I, I was, I got into Bitcoin listening to, uh, podcasts that were coming out of the, the USA and, um, and, and, and they really got me fired, fired up and uh, excited about Bitcoin. And so, um, you know, I just thought perhaps it'd be good to have, uh, uh, different voices in the mix. So, uh, yeah, so I thought doing my podcast, which is the Bitcoin UK, uh, podcast and would, would be a good idea to kind of. Yeah, just to expand, uh, you know, the the number of places where people can go to get information and and uh, you know focus um, on what's happening in the UK as well. Um, there's a lot of good stuff going down. Yeah, absolutely, and I think there's a uh, very few podcasts in Europe. And I mean, there's you know me and Justin we're both in Europe, and uh, there's yours. Uh, I don't know if there are any other. Well, no, there's there's some more. There's one in Austria, and there's another one in Germany. I know at least, but. Uh, there's uh, yeah, there's definitely n not as much as in US, so I think it's great to see uh, another European-focused podcast as well. Absolutely, and then there's room for more, <laughs> even still. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us today, guys. You know, it was really great to talk about uh, Coinopole, talk about you know, regulations, and let the bit drop a project. So yeah, thanks so much for joining. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Brian. Yeah. Uh, and of course, also thanks for listening to the show. If you want to support us, you can do so by donating. And you can do that at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also follow us on Twitter at epicenterbtc. And uh, if you, what's also very helpful is leaving us an iTunes review so people uh, can find the show. And you can also let us know what, we do, you know what you like about the show and what we can do better. So thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week.